from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. We're back in the studio. I'm Ty Morgan, and here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. Better yields? Four tenths of a percent increase in corn and beans, a little bit of a surprise. I think the bigger surprise was that they didn't uh, lower export projections. USDA shows a yield bump in the latest report. We'll break down that report, plus get a yield check from the field. Could fertilizer shipments soon go off the rails? You add that threat with low river levels and, and uh, we, we no pun intended, could be on a, on a perfect storm. Exploring the possibility of a rail strike. A grain bin rescue. We meet a farmer who's thankful to be alive. And in John's world. EV range anxiety. Now for the news, we begin with the latest supply and demand snapshot from USDA. The agency offering up some changes again to yields, raising the size of the corn crop. It's putting corn yields now over 172 bushels per acre, with production forecast at almost 14 billion bushels. That's up 35 million from last month. And on soybeans, that yield now 50.2 bushels per acre. Forecasters specifically saying higher yields in Iowa and Missouri, accounting for much of that change. Production is now at 4.35 billion bushels. That's up 33 million. Now the numbers about what was expected from the trade. Corn ending stocks were raised slightly to 1.18 billion, but below trade expectations, with soybean ending stocks raised to 220 million, which was above estimates. Wheat stocks were lowered 5 million bushels to 571 million. That's the lowest level in 15 years. We'll take a deeper dive into the numbers coming up in our roundtable discussion. Well, President Biden is scheduled to meet Monday with China's President Xi Jinping. The two meeting on the sidelines of the Group of 20 Summit in Bali, Indonesia. The face-to-face -face meeting coming amid increasingly strained U.S.-China relations. It will be the first in-person meeting between the leaders of the world's two biggest economies since Mr. Biden became president in January 2021. The White House, in announcing the meeting, said the two leaders would discuss, quote, deepening lines of communication, end quote. Another big story this week, the midterm elections with the battle for control of Congress coming down to just a handful of critical races. The main states were watching Nevada, Arizona and Georgia, where a tight contest between incumbent Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock and Republican Herschel Walker will go to a December runoff. Control of the House also remains uncertain. Key farm state lawmakers, including House Ag Chairman Democrat David Scott of Georgia and ranking member Republican G.T. Thompson of Pennsylvania, were easily reelected. Republican Senator John Boozman of Arkansas won reelection and Virginia's Abigail Spanberger were among Democrats winning close races. While inflation is still a big issue, the latest consumer price index showed some prices are improving. The new CPI report shows Americans paid 7.7% more for items during the 12-month period that ended in October. That's a slight drop from 8.2% in September. Some economic officials say this shows inflation is moving in the right direction. Well, U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Alinda Thomas-Greenfield, traveling this week to Ukraine, speaking directly with farmers there about the U.N. brokered grain deal. 
The grain deal is due to expire this month, and there are fears Russia, which already suspended its participation in the deal once, will not agree to its renewal. But the two sides, along with U.N. officials, holding talks on Friday. The grain deal helping Ukraine export almost 14.3 million tons of grain so far this season. That's down more than 30 percent from the 20.6 million tons it exported last season. Ukraine has said it could harvest up to 52 million tons of grain this year, which is down from a record 86 million tons in 2021 because of the loss of land to Russian forces as well as lower yields. Well, cargo concerns in the U.S. continue. While rains along the Mississippi River may help improve historically low water levels, some barge traffic is still being severely impacted. Researchers say the number of grain barges being unloaded in New Orleans from September and October were 20 to 30 percent lower than in recent years. You can see that represented on this chart here in blue. There were closures and restrictions on the river that reduced the number of barges that can be towed in a group and how much each barge can carry. Since the start of September, tonnage going through three locks was down more than 40%. Again, that is in blue, but experts say it appears to have picked back up early last month and then slowed down again when compared to the three-year average. All right, it was a big news week, but we have a lot of weather to talk about, too. Tracking a rare November hurricane, but also a major cold front that could grip the country. We'll have a check of your weather next. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Pioneer. Looking for the next big yield breakthrough? Then look to Pioneer. By combining industry-leading R&D with rigorous local testing, what's next happens here at Pioneer. U.S. Farm Report weather is brought to you by H&S Manufacturing. The new Loadmaster 2X Harvesting Dual Box Dump Cart is capable of lifting and dumping up to 60,000 pounds of product and filling 36 or 40-foot semi-trailers in just one dump. Find out more at the H&S website. Time now for a check of weather with meteorologist Andrew Whitmer filling in for Matt Urasavik. Matt, a November hurricane is rare, and I know you're tracking that as it treks north, but talk also about a brutal blast of cold weather hitting many of our viewers this weekend. And we do continue to watch uh, Nicole Tyne. And as we take a look here at the, the uh, root zone map uh, from uh, Halloween, notice how we get a lot of reds and yellows and oranges uh, showcasing again drier weather throughout parts of Georgia as well as the Carolinas. And as we advance into uh, this uh, Thursday, this past Thursday, November 10th, uh, drought zone, a uh, root zone here, uh, we continue to still see inundated with drier weather, but once Nicole kind of passes on through, I do expect this to change as we go throughout uh, parts of uh, next week. The other thing to note as well is lots of the Pacific Northwest has really lessened kind of those uh, more uh, very dry and extreme conditions out there uh, from uh, several low pressure systems that kind of inundated that area uh, last week, and that is some good news there on the drought monitor. Looking at the uh, drought monitor a little bit closer again, still watching pox, the drier conditions out across the parts of the Carolinas as well as parts of the Midwest and Great Lakes states. We continue, though, to still watch kind of the central plains from Nebraska, the western half there of Kansas, as well as Oklahoma, where we're in an extreme to an exceptional drought, and it doesn't look like we're going to get a lot of systems really to produce any significant changes to this here as we go throughout the mid-month here of November and going up to the Pacific Northwest as well. We're still dealing with some dry conditions, but again, a lot of improvement compared to where we were at two to three weeks ago 
across to parts of the Pacific Northwest. Let's walk you through the uh, Monday forecast here for November 14th. We'll be watching an area of high pressure around the Great Lakes area that will keep things quiet. Meanwhile, we'll watch another series of low pressure systems followed by a cold front that will continue to march its way eastward. And that's going to keep with it kind of below average temperatures throughout much of the lower 48 here as we head on into a mid month here of November. Here we are for Wednesday, November 16th. Big domes of high pressure out west. That's going to allow a, again a very quiet pattern to kind of set up across much of the lower 48 here. And we'll be watching another cold front on the heels here of this upcoming weekend just ahead of that Thanksgiving holiday week. Let's take a look at the jet stream here as we go throughout this week. Uh, we'll be watching a few pieces here trying to work its way off of the polar vortex. We'll also uh, tap into some of that uh, polar jet stream energy as well, and that's going to keep the northern states well, well below average here. A good 10 to 20 degrees below average, and then as we head closer towards this weekend, we really don't get much relief here. But if you want kind of some more milder weather, you're going to have to head all the way across the deep south and head all the way down into uh, at least the southern half of Florida as well. Going through the jets, or at least the temperatures this week here, thanks to the jet stream dipping down, again, much below average temperatures expected across much of the lower 48. Uh, you only have to find a little sliver of Florida, the southern end there, for a little bit of above average temperatures. And then as we take a look at precipitation, again, not a lot of movement here west to east as we go throughout this week. Expect below average temperatures as well as below average precipitation throughout much of the country. Well, USDA bumping yields in its latest report, but how big of a surprise was it to the market? We have Mark Gold and Brian Split joining us next. Welcome back this weekend. Mark Gold of StoneX Group, as well as Brian Split of AgMarket.net. Coming right off of Veterans Day on Friday, Brian, you served in the Marines, still a proud Marine. We want to salute you this weekend as well. Yeah, thank you, Tyne. And uh, I'd like to wish a happy 247th birthday to all my uh, fellow Marine brothers and sisters. Definitely. Thank you, Brian. Well, you know, we look at this USDA report this past week did see an adjustment to yield, actually bumped up the yield for both corn and soybeans. Mark, was that a surprise to the market? Well, I think it was. But first, I want to say uh, thank you uh, to Brian for his service. I looked up his record and it's quite a distinguished record out there. And I sincerely appreciate uh, the time you spent in defending our country. Uh, getting back to the reports, you know, uh, four tenths of a percent increase in corn and beans, a little bit of a surprise. I think the bigger surprise was that they didn't uh, lower export projections. I think that's coming down the road, but I didn't see anything friendly in these reports. I was surprised the beans acted as well as they did, but uh, today, well, on Thursday, they gave back, you know, quite a bit of it. Yeah. And, you know, when you look at the adjustment to yield, Brian, maybe a little bit of surprise to some of the market there, but does it change the balance sheet much when you add that yield back in? No, Tyne, it really didn't change the balance sheet as of right now very much. Uh, the small increase in yield was slightly offset by an increase in the feed residual demand in that category. But um, I, I think the problem here that we have to realize is that we had a, a bullish uh, September WASDE report. We had a bullish quarterly stock report at the end of September. We had a bullish October WASDE report. And uh, the market got tired. It, we, we really just couldn't get through $7 on the future side. And so I think you have to really wonder what else is there right now to get the market to push through there. Uh, so as we approach year end, the fund manager may 
uh, decide to lighten up. They've been long corn for quite some time. They uh, have not seen any new highs being made recently. And uh, they may let this market come back down, retrace some of this rally that we had from the July low to the October high. Um, the 635 area would be about halfway uh, into that rally. You've got a gap at 631. So these are going to be some potential targets. And then we'll see what the fund manager wants to do as we approach the January final production numbers. But we're not going to get any new data from the USDA likely in, in the uh, December WASDE report. So we've got what we're going to work with for now for about the next two months. Mark, you mentioned it. No change to exports. You think that's coming down the road. Which commodity do you think has the most room for change, you know, up or to the to the lower side from USDA? Well, I think for the time being, the corn, uh, we've seen some a uh, little bit of pickup in Mexico, which is good. But overall, you know, I look at beans. Uh, we're losing our export window here almost daily. We can't get beans out through the Gulf. They're trying to get them out through Houston and Alabama. Some are moving west, going out to the uh, PNC, uh, Pacific Northwest. Uh, so, you know, the beans are still pretty tight, but, you know, on the carryouts, we went from a 200 carryout to a 220. It's a 10% increase. You look at the world stocks of a million point seven million metric tons. That's a fairly big increase. I believe this Brazilian crop is going to be a monster unless something really changes. Argentina's had some good rains. Funds are along 240,000 contracts of corn, 100,000 beans, 100,000 oil. I just don't see where we're going in this thing unless it's to the downside. We're going to need something to shake. If Putin signs this agreement uh, over the weekend, um, I don't see much hope. But you, you had the dollar down over two full cents and we couldn't rally a week. Well, Mark doesn't sound very bullish, Brian. So when you look at the supply and the demand, those factors right now, not even looking at the outside markets, are you concerned about significant downside risk? I'm more concerned about significant downside risk in the soybeans than I am corn. And I'm not going to say that corn can't go down. And I think we're probably going to continue to grind lower here in the short term. But uh, when I look at, uh, as Mark had mentioned, the, the size of the upcoming Brazilian crop, uh, Argentina getting rains recently, and uh, we're going to have an issue here coming up very soon where uh, I think China's been doing the buying that they need to do to get them to the South American harvest. And, and once that crop is online, um, we may experience uh, two quarters of, of no export sales for soybeans once that the Brazilians have that crop available. We have a lot more to talk about with Mark and Brian, so stay with us. U.S. Farm Report is sponsored by the National Pork Board. National Pork Board is getting the word out about real pork with a myth-busting campaign that shows consumers the story of real pork on the farm. Visit pork.org slash we care to learn more. Well, electric cars had a big speed bump in the midterm elections. John Phipps looks at the reality of a world of electric vehicles this weekend. Rural America, and farmers especially, are skeptical, to put it mildly, about electric vehicles. This attitude is reasonable, but it also may be myopic. We struggle to grasp what a tiny sliver of the auto market we represent and how little our contempt for EVs means. Some context might help. First, global EV adoption is not and will not be driven by U.S. consumer attitudes. China has grown to almost double the number of vehicles sold annually, which means car manufacturers will take their production lead from them most of the time. 
China's market will not be determined by consumer whim either, but by their autocratic leadership. The EU is also mirroring this trend to EVs. China also essentially owns the car battery market along with Korea and Japan, not to mention the required raw material supply. Adoption in the U.S. will struggle to grow until our battery supply chain is more diversified or at least more secure. Americans will be much slower to change compared to the rest of the world and farmers slower yet. Our minuscule market share will not influence the future. Second, Americans, and especially rural residents, are justifiably leery of EV range, even though our trips are overwhelmingly short, well within EV limitations. From the ever-helpful visual capitalist, here is the current situation for that range anxiety. Despite rapid improvements in battery capacity, ICE, internal combustion engines, are really the only practical choice for country people. ICE vehicles have a vast infrastructure for refueling and do so quickly. Recharging stations for EVs are scarce and will be built last in rural locations, if at all. Electrification is not and may never be suitable for large equipment like farm machinery. The wild card, however, is rural solar power adoption. We have room for those arrays, which makes an EV logical as a short-range vehicle. Third, despite our huge size, America has followed a transportation path determined by our inclination for cars and airplanes. We are efficiently positioned to travel short and long distances, but are completely lacking a medium-distant alternative, namely trains. Consider that China has built 26,000 miles of 200-mile-an-hour rail in the past 15 years. EV range matters less there because they have a practical mid-range alternative. Regardless, given the size of our auto fleet, even reaching the proposed EV sales goals means decades before EVs outnumber ICE vehicles on the road. Thanks, John. And that QR code on your screen will take you to more of John's commentary on our YouTube page. Well, up next, Machinery Pete has some classic iron. Tractor Tales is next. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by NK Seeds, the fastest growing seed brand, getting you top hybrids and varieties that perform on your acre. NK Seeds, bushels don't lie. The NRCS Conservation Stewardship Program cost shares more than 150 practices on farms and ranches. Visit your local service center or farmers.gov today. Hey, welcome back to Tractor Tales, folks. This week, we're gonna head to Kansas for a special reunion with the 1955 Case 400. This is a 400 Case, 1955, 400 Case diesel. That's, my dad bought it brand new from Joe Henning Implement in Lawrence, Kansas. All my life, whenever I saw a 400 diesel, I would check the serial number on it to see if it was dad's. And then uh, I found this one on an auction and it was dad's. 806-8888, which is all eights. It's easy to remember, so yeah, it means a lot to me. Of all the places it could have went or got scrapped or anything, yeah. I don't know how many times, how many owners it had, but the last owner I got it from had used it for mowing and had it probably for 30 years. Now, he had it longer than we had it. Dad bought it in 55 and he traded it off in 60. I was five years old 
and it came out. Uh, Helmer Johanning brought it out on the truck and unloaded it, and he left. And Dad said, you want to go on a tractor ride to Mom and I? And we said, yeah. So we went out here and went down to corner and back, and there was snow on the ground. But I remember it. And well, that's kind of the thing with the fenders on it. The fenders have been welded up. I, it needs new fenders, but I hate to put them on there. That's the fenders I always hung on to when I was riding around with Dad on the tractor. So it, yeah, it's probably my biggest tractor find, getting the actual tractor back. To actually get it back is pretty amazing, really. Thanks, Greg. Well, when we come back, what's the likelihood we could see labor negotiations go off the rails and a strike in just a week along the railways in the U.S.? We're navigating the uncertain terrain from rail to water next. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. Welcome back this weekend. Well, U.S. transportation has faced rough waters all year. And now that the Mississippi River remains critically low, it's applying more pressure to an already fragile rail system. We explore the situation this weekend in our Farm Journal Report. And I would say by and large, you know, we're on the short rows, so to speak, time of, of harvest here. Harvest in the core of the Corn Belt is nearing the finish line. But I'd say in the next week, we'll have that fairly well completed. And, and we're on to the fertilizer side now, both dry and uh, an aggressive run on the ammonia, trying to beat this cold weather that's coming in here uh, later this week. As fall field work picks up pace, so do concerns about what the potential crisis on the nation's railways could mean for business. The, the weakness of that system is it's so fragile with one person not showing up has a ripple effect for what could be days on, on a unit train coming to see us or, or, or leaving our facilities. Landis Cooperative is a farmer-owned cooperative with a large footprint in Iowa. And as the Mississippi River remains low, Landis's Matt Carstens says it puts more pressure on rail. If you're not getting movement uh, on the river system or those freights get high enough, which they are now, you see a switch to rail putting more pressure on the rail infrastructure. Demand has surged for rail cars. National Grain and Feed Association says the cost of rail freight is proof. We're also hearing that the secondary rail freight uh, rates on a car, rail car are running around 1500 to 2000 a car right now. And I think that number was around $150 a car at this time last year. The cost has jumped 13 times where it was last year. And now that vital shipping vein of rail is also at a fragile state. The situation we're in right now, obviously, uh, there was the agreement uh, that was reached and that was announced back in September. Uh, with the Biden administration we're working with the rail, railroads and, and the unions um, to get that deal. Um, but all 12 unions have to ratify it. As of today, NGFA says two unions have already voted to not ratify that agreement. And there are three remaining unions, one uh, which I believe will announce, make their announcement, I think, on November 14th and two others, the two largest ones. Uh, which are scheduled for November 21st. The hiccup is all unions must ratify the deal. If not, under the agreement, the rail workers can strike starting November 19th. But just this week, a group representing a major railroad, as well as a union that already voted to reject the new contract, agreed to push that potential strike date back to December 4th. While this gives the groups more time to reach a new agreement, some fear it's just kicking the can down the road as concerns over transportation heat up. You add that threat 
with low river levels and and uh we we no pun intended could be on a, on a perfect storm here if if things don't go the right way quickly whether it's it's enough rainfall to get those river levels up uh, but now with the freeze coming in yeah, you know, a bunch of rain really isn't going to help us at this point. Strike or no strike, rail issues have created waves all year. But Seifert says as the September strike was avoided, there have also been signs of improvement on rail. A number of our members have told us that they had expected it to be uh, a little more difficult uh, here in the fall and in the harvest than, than it was. And, and I think the fact um, that, that they're not saying that that was all indeed the case, that that's a good thing. Seifert says the latest data shows as of November 3rd, unfilled grain cart orders of 11 days or more set at 4,657. In April, it was two times that at 9,492 cars, but compare that to a year ago at only 430. Another sign of just how strained rail has been this year. I think the concern would be that, um, yeah, no pun intended, that it could throw things off the rails. I think, I think the concern is that we're making progress. Um, and we have been going in the right direction, even though we do still have some challenges. Seifert says shutting down rail for even a few days would provide shocks to the system. And there's questions of just how long it would take that system to recover. Something Landis is also watching. I, I fear, you know, the, the freeze coming on the river system, still low levels, more pressure on rail, the strike on rail uh, kind of looming over our, our heads still. There's a lot that uh, that creates some angst if you're in the agribusiness world or a farmer in particular. There's, there's a lot of pressure on this that, that's got to get resolved. Well, what could the possible rail strike mean for historically strong bases across the country? Mark Gold and Brian Split answer that question next. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Pioneer. Pioneer combines leading-edge R&D with rigorous local testing to create seed innovations proven to thrive in your fields. Pioneer, what's next happens here. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Mark Gold and Brian Split rejoining us. All right, we just took a deep dive looking at the rail situation, the concerns about a possible strike. You know, the rail situation wasn't as bad as what some had feared this harvest. We did kick the can down the road when it comes to that strike. But when you look at bases, if we do end up seeing rail workers strike, Mark, what could we see happen to bases this time of year? Well, I believe that there's going to be a lot of grain out here. I believe farmers are going to have to move a lot of grain. Uh, the rail strike won't help it. Um, farmers have been asking me for the last two, three weeks, you know, what do we do with grain in the bin, corn and beans. And I just ask them, what's your basis? And when they tell me it's 75 to a buck and a quarter over on corn and 50 to 75 cents over in beans, I have no idea why they're storing grain. Uh, it doesn't pay to carry it. You know, it's the fear of missing out FOMO that's keeping guys from selling grain. Uh, you know, can the basis go higher? I suppose it can, but I don't see it going a whole lot higher no matter what happens. And if some of these things do hit the market, like Brian said, this basis can fall apart in a hurry. And the problem is, once this thing starts to roll, it's going to move faster than the American farmer is going to move on it. So, you know, I implore these guys out here, if you've got grain in the bin, sell it, reown it with a call option. If for some reason you're still hesitant to sell it, particularly on new crop, you need to have some puts underneath because this thing could get ugly. Again, I never predict prices. I look at risk. And to me, the risk is certainly out there. 
Yeah. And, and you, you look at that risk, but at the same time, you can't ignore the fact, Brian, that we do have a grain deficit in the West. I mean, you look at the poor yields, you look at those cattle producers right now that are going anywhere they can to get grain, paying way over the board to get that feed. So is that something that does provide a floor under this market as well, though? Well, that's going to be a, a cash market issue and the market's going to have to find a way to get grain from where it is to where it needs to be. But I don't think that that means that the board price can't go down. Uh, and in the big picture right now, you've got a lot of things and Mark had mentioned this, you know, you've got very strong basis. You have producers that are putting grain in the bin, hoping it gets stronger and, and maybe it will in the short term. December is typically a, a period of time where you see a good peak in basis. Uh, but you know, as we as we look ahead, uh, we have to remember that, you know, the idea of, of rationing demand, um, you know, a lot of people will look at the futures market and say, oh, well, you know, we had futures hit 750 for corn and we couldn't get through seven. So are we really rationing demand? But it's the cash market that's rationing that demand. It's the it's the futures plus what the basis is doing. Um, and so I think we've got some issues here where as we go into the end of the year, the beginning of 2023, uh, we'll see if if yesterday the USDA started a trend of these crops getting bigger. Do they get bigger again in January? And will we see that export demand uh, come back down? And I think uh, Mark is correct about that. Uh, you look at corn for export. We're going to have to see Mexico step up. They did a little bit of buying before the September WASDE report. They did a little bit of buying before the Coral report. They did a little bit of buying before this November WASDE report. But this is the time of year where Mexico will typically purchase a million and a half, two million tons. Um, and now they're talking about not buying GMO corn for 2023, and that's going to be a problem. When you look at the CPI, Mark, uh, that data that came out this week, a little bit better than what some had expected. We've been talking about recession. We've been talking about inflation. But considering that CPA, CPI wasn't as, as bad as some had expected, is that a plus for the commodity markets as we look in the, these months ahead? You know, honestly, I don't I don't see it. The stock market on Thursday really at a thousand points on the CPI. Uh, it's still not good. Uh, we're still looking at higher interest rates uh, next month, maybe again after the first of the year. I think they want to get the interest rates somewhere between five and five and a half percent. So, you know, we've had these rallies before and generally they've been fairly good sales up here. Um, on the grain side of it, though, I'd like to say that one of the things we've seen consistently over the last several months is every time we get a hard break in a market, every time we get a hard rally in the market, the end users are in there on the on the buy side. The pros are in there on the sell side. And I think the end users will continue to be here on the breaks until we get to the first of the year. All right, Brian, real quick. I know you're keeping a close eye on crypto as well. We've seen the value wash out in some of these cryptos. You know, what does that potentially mean for commodities? Is there something we should be watching when we see those values shift so quickly? Well, I think, number one, uh, when you look at what's happened with FTX and you've got, uh, you know, billions and billions of dollars have been washed out seemingly overnight. And, uh, you know, some of these fund managers that are diversified have uh, assets in, in commodities, equities, some in crypto. Um, and so anytime there's one entity or one part of that allocation that takes a very big hit, uh, that might require some rebalancing. So uh, if that's the case, uh, we've got the fund manager that's long corn and soybeans. Does that mean they need to reduce the positions to pay for losses in some of their crypto allocations? That's very possible. All right. Well, Brian, thank you again for your service. Mark, thank you for joining us this weekend. We appreciate it. We need to take a quick break and then we'll have much more right here on U.S. Farm Report this weekend.
U.S. Farm Report is sponsored by the National Pork Board. National Pork Board is getting the word out about real pork with a myth-busting campaign that shows consumers the story of real pork on the farm. Visit pork.org slash we care to learn more. Well, another close call that turned into a story of survival. A farmer in Mississippi is alive this weekend thanks to a massive community effort to free him after getting trapped in a grain bin. These soybeans may look tiny, but imagine being buried beneath 10 to 12 feet of them. The quicksand effect oh. of the, the, just pulled him under. Deborah Thornhill is counting her blessings. Her brother Wayne Brakefield is still alive tonight. I could see the beans pouring out that side of the bin, and then I could hear them hitting the side of the bin, and I told her, I said, Kathy, he's in the bin. Well, I began to run, and I got down here, and Richard was just doing everything he could, and we weren't getting anywhere. It didn't take long until the Brakefields knew they needed help. All I could think of was we'd got to get him out as quick as possible. Summerall Volunteer Fire Chief Virginia Hayes was among the cavalry to answer the call with dozens of others. But when I got on scene, they were saying that they could hear him moaning and groaning and um, underneath all that, so we knew he was still alive. So that's we were working as hard as we possibly could to dig him out and then cut him out. Crews had to use this circular saw to cut through the thick metal. This was a lifesaver right here. This is what done most of the work. With each passing minute, family members worried about the oxygen left in the silo as Wayne remained wedged near the auger below the beans. It was a whole lot harder to stay calm, you know, once I knew he had been quiet for a while. As long as I knew they could hear him, I could hold it together. After an hour and three cuts. This was, this was a lifesaver right here. Wayne Brakefield was finally free. A lot of Thanksgiving, a lot of Thanksgiving. Just thanking the Lord for keeping his hand on him. Thankful for the support that we received and his watch and protection over not just Daddy, but those people as well. It's a rescue Chief Hayes and her volunteers will never forget. There's still a long road ahead for Wayne and his family. He'll likely lose a few toes and is still in the hospital, but loved ones are just thankful he's still here. In Summerall, Tia McKenzie, WDAM 7, on your side. Wow, he has a lot to be thankful for this year. Thanks so much, Tia. All right, when we come back, John Phipps is talking about pollution problems. That's next. Well, the U.S. continues to look at climate solutions, but can the same be said for overseas? John Phipps looks at the pollution problem and customer support this week. Sometimes my emails almost answer each other. This one from John Cox in Bronson, Iowa. Why does the United States continually send its polluting manufacturing overseas when we could most likely do it here more cleanly, like ag chemical and fertilizer production? Is it an out-of-sight, out-of-mind thing? John, our domestic mining, refining, and processing capacity was, was gradually replaced over the years by foreign sources, and you're correct when you describe it in your email as exporting pollution. Most re mineral refining uses solvents and produces waste that present an expensive headache to contain safely from the environment. It became a legal, and profitable alternative to simply buy refined products from other countries instead. To be sure, those countries were not coerced into doing the dirty work, so to speak. 
Such industries provided millions of relatively good jobs and wages and lifted areas and sometimes even countries from abject poverty. The advanced world was also too slow to recognize how damaging these processes can be to people and the surroundings. Now on to the related topic of lowering our dependence on China for rare earth minerals needed to feed those planned chip factories. So, what is the plan to source the minerals needed for these chips? Yes, the U.S. does have the minerals, but getting new mining operations approved is just like getting a new oil refinery built, last one in 1976 in the U.S. Presently, it's just not allowed. And that's from Gary Krultz in Withy, Wisconsin. After centuries of extraction and processing industries operating here in the U.S., it became clear to Americans they were damaging the environment and our own people with these facilities. Led by the Nixon administration, Congress established the Environmental Protection Agency and went on to enact the Clean Air and Clean Water Acts. As someone who remembers the Cuyahoga River burning, the need was obvious. It turned out to be an enormous expense for the government and business to begin rectifying those mistakes. Since then, governments at all levels, prodded by citizens who now are aware of these costs, have gotten into the regulation business. Your point about how difficult building a new processing plant will be is spot on. Sitting in on any local zoning commission meeting will do much to help you understand why I think such facilities will struggle to see the light of day. Thank you, John. When we come back, USDA bumped yields in the latest report, but how is harvest in Illinois? We're on the road for IED Harvest Update with Michelle Rook next. Closed captioning on U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by BASF. BASF, helping you to do the biggest job on earth. The I-80 Harvest Tour is brought to you exclusively by Case IH. Case IH equipment is designed, engineered, and built by farmers. See their stories at BuiltByFarmers.com. Well, harvest has gone quickly for farmers in Illinois this fall thanks to cooperative weather. 94% of the soybeans are out of the field compared to 89% for the five-year average. Corn harvest stands at 88% complete. Michelle Rook is off to the fields to get a first-hand look in our I-80 harvest report this weekend. The harvest season is quickly wrapping up here in Illinois and it's produced some mixed and surprising yield results for farmers. In central Illinois, planting was late for Alex Head and the corn was hit by hot, dry conditions during pollination. So the harvest was a pleasant surprise. We did see some tip back, so yeah, I mean, it took probably a little bit off of it, but I mean, overall the corn, no, I mean, can't complain with the yields. So um, it's been, been good so far what we've done and say everybody I've talked to has been happy with their corn yield. In northern Illinois, Wade McLaughlin had similar results with timely rains and very little disease pressure. We've been very pleased with our corn yields this year. They're not record setting, um, but well above APH. I would say anywhere from 10 to 20 bushel above APH. And his test weights also added to the yield. I would say the majority has fallen between 59 and 61. So real pleased with, with our test weights. Farther south, farmer and market analyst Matt Bennett says those trends were true on his farm. So he thinks the statewide corn yields could set a new record. 
I think Illinois will be better than last year. Is it going to break an all-time record? The final yield, I believe, in 18 was uh, 209. It was printed at 210 at, at one point that growing season, marketing year, you name it. But do we get to 210 or above? I think it's a very possible situation. Soybeans were the opposite, with yields somewhat disappointing compared to expectations due to too much late-season rain and diseases like SDS. A lot of beans in our part of the world were running from the mid-60s to mid-80s. You know, there were some mid-80s, and we had some of them. So they're, they're good, above APH and above, but um, not like, exceptional like we thought they might have been. So Bennett, who thought soybean yields in Illinois had a chance of breaking the record, now thinks they'll miss that mark. In Illinois, I'm Michelle Rook. Thanks so much, Michelle. Well, that does it for U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Don't forget to tune in Thanksgiving weekend for annual Harvest of Thanks. We're busy putting together those heartfelt stories that you won't want to miss. Well, for all of us from U.S. Farm Report, thank you for watching this weekend. And be sure to join us next weekend as we work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.